Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Today I'll be covering another broad forestry topic. I started this trend at the beginning of this year with forest fires. And this time I'll discuss how we as humans manage forests. What is forest management? What does it mean? Using terminology from the North Carolina Forestry Association, managing a forest means to maintain or improve the health and productivity of a forest to achieve the landowner's objective for their property. And I specifically went with this definition because it is vague and simple. There are a number of ways that we as humans manage forests, even if it consists of a more hands-off approach, and it all comes down to the specific strategies the managers use to meet a variety of objectives. Before we can explain how a forest is managed, we must understand what we want a given forest, any treed area, to be. So let's take a look at some of the most common objectives, focusing on economic and ecological, and get a better idea of what decisions and actions are required in order to help a forest be whatever it is we think it should be. Like I said, I am primarily splitting the idea of forest management into two broad objectives, human consumption and ecological benefit. To be clear, these two things can coexist within a single management plan, and there are going to be nuances and different considerations to take into account across the two broad ideas. But usually my episodes have a clear first half and second half, so this is just how I'm making my typical format work for me. And one more point of clarification, the idea of a quote-unquote correct management objective is in no way objective. Your idea of how a forest should be managed may not align with how it is actually managed. This is just a presentation of the reality of forestry in the United States today. We are going to start with forests that are managed for the objective of economic profit and human consumption. Let me present forests to you with a perspective that you may not have considered. In the context of this objective, trees are a crop, and forests are agricultural lands. We are growing plants and harvesting them for human use and consumption, no different from cornfields, sugar plantations, or berry farms. It is why national forests are managed within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This begs the question, then, how are we consuming our forests? One of the earliest examples of humans managing forests is for the purpose of firewood as fuel. And this is still a common management objective to this day. Western countries may picture a neat woodshed that was stockpiled by chopping down trees in your backyard or somewhere on your property. Even this small act is an example of forest management. You're keeping a wooded area in your backyard likely for a variety of purposes like aesthetics, but also in order to harvest wood as a resource. But forest management for firewood will look a little different to rural parts of undeveloped countries where firewood is a more heavily relied upon fuel source. It's the thing that's actually going to heat their home and cook their food every day, not gas or electricity. To these areas, forest management likely means having plantations of large shrubs, species that grow numerous stems and re-sprout quickly after being cut. This is a process known as coppicing, 
when woody plants are cut in such a way that encourages the quick regrowth of a cluster of stems. The stems grow back in less than 10 years, so with a big enough forest you can just rotate your harvest through the plantation over and over again. Another way humans consume forests is through literal consumption. We harvest tree parts and ingest them as food or medicine. I've talked about a number of species like the apple or pomegranate that show evidence of domestication as early as 10,000 years ago. Growing forests, or orchards, of fruit trees so that we had even more fruit to eat while our populations grew. And not just in a basic way, these agricultural humans were practicing genetic selection so that the next generation of fruit was bigger and tastier. It's how the pomegranate went from berry size to fist size, and how apples went from a single species to thousands of unique varieties. Today, the production of trees for food and medicine is a practice that we can most easily picture as agriculture, since these forests typically appear the most heavily managed. It's unlikely that there's vegetation growing between the trees so as to reduce competition for their crop, and the trees all look nearly identical since efforts would have been put into maintaining a consistent genetic stock to produce a consistent product. There's been a push in recent decades towards something called permaculture. This is an idea popularized in the environmental movements of the 1960s and 70s that involves reworking a natural aspect into agriculture as a reconnected system. Agriculture is inherently a human-centric process, and some argue that this division between man and nature is unhealthy. If you've heard of food forests, this is part of the permaculture idea. It's not something I personally know a whole lot about because it's a lot more into agricultural theory, but from what I can tell, it's one of those ideas that works well on a small scale, but ultimately is way too expensive, unreliable, and inefficient for large tracts of land that produce a lot of food for our growing populations. But likely the most recognizable way that we as humans consume forest products is through wood products. We grow forests of tall trees that are cut down and sawed into boards for construction or furniture, or ground into pulp to make paper. I'm going to stick with this example because it feels like a process that is the most approachable for people outside of the forestry world. If you were to ask someone how they can make money off of trees, a pretty accessible answer is to cut them down and sell them for wood. But the actual management process to get that wood is a little more complicated. While forest management more often involves planning, the execution of this management is typically referred to as silviculture. The word has Latin and French roots and ultimately means the cultivation of wood. Silviculture was a class offered to third-year undergraduates at my university, and I'm going to try and sum up everything I learned in it for you in 10 minutes. Here's how the process works of active forest management for timber products. Congratulations! You've just bought a mature forest and those green leaves sure do look like dollar bills to you. How do we get them into your pocket? The way you harvest your trees is going to affect how you start your next forest, so you have a few choices. And you never want to cut down your whole forest at once, you want to cut down sections, called stands, at a time, so you end up with a paycheck more often than once every 30 years. One option is to clear-cut. Cut every tree down in your chosen stand and start from scratch. The benefits include a bigger paycheck for cutting down more at once and having more control over the next generation. When you clear-cut, 
you have to plant your new stand by hand, and you can plant it with seedlings that were grown from a more controlled genetic stock. But it does require more labor to start from scratch, and you're not really taking into account the ecological services that that section of forest serves. A slightly more natural harvest method is seed tree, where you leave a few of the biggest trees that grew in that section and allow it to be the genetic parent to your new forest. This allows some consideration for the habitat these trees serve as, and you're using genetic stock that you can relatively trust. Of course, you want the new forest to come from the most dominant trees of your previous forest. But anytime natural is chosen over artificial, you still must take into account how unpredictable nature can be. Similar to seed tree is shelterwood harvest, where you harvest smaller, older sections out of your overall stand. This allows for natural regeneration of your forest and gives your seedlings a more foresty area to grow in. And the differences in age between the trees creates a diverse area that better supports a natural ecosystem in between harvests. But again, you are subjected to the whims of nature when it comes to your genetic stock for the next generation. One more harvest method is called selection, where you just harvest the best and biggest trees at any given time while leaving the rest of the stand mostly intact. It's pretty much the opposite of seed tree, where the biggest and best are what remain. Ultimately though, none of these methods are objectively better or worse than each other. Each style of harvest is more beneficial to different tree species, and works differently for what your ultimate economic objective is going to be. But now that you've harvested this stand, you're ready to make a new one. Before any planting happens, foresters will perform what is called site preparation. This is pretty similar to what more traditional farmers do with their fields, tilling the earth so as to make a nice bed for seedlings to establish in, as well as applying chemicals that get rid of insects or weeds that can threaten the next generation of trees. From there, you're ready to plant, or simply let the forest regenerate if that's the strategy plan you're going with. In between planting and harvest, there's still a lot of work to do to ensure that your final product is as profitable as possible. At different ages, a forester may come in and thin the forest. This means that some of the trees are cut down at a younger age for a couple different purposes. This allows a land manager to remove trees that are unhealthy. It reduces competition for the trees that are growing really well, and it can get you some side money between full harvests. One other mid-rotation practice is pruning, trimming the lower branches of your trees. This is going to improve the quality of your wood. Where branches grow is going to be where knots form on wood, and in general, knotty wood is considered less valuable. Foresters have figured out how much canopy trees need to keep in order to continue growing productively. In some species, you only need around 30% of the original canopy for the tree to keep growing like normal, so the rest can be pruned off and allow for more of that stem to be turned into higher quality wood. And after all that work, it's time to harvest again. But most private forest companies have huge stretches of woodlands that are split into different sections of different ages. One month you may be harvesting this area, planting another area over there, and pruning these areas over here. It is a constant process, and foresters have come a long way to make it so efficient. But we've also come a long way in making forestry a more sustainable process. Sustainability is a concept that stands upon three pillars. Society, ecology, and economy. 
A human-driven world requires all three of these pillars to have a healthy relationship in order to sustain itself. Sometimes people think of the environment as this magical hippie land that people want to protect because they just love it so gosh darn much. But the environment is where we get our resources from. Resources that serve as the raw materials for our society and economy. And if our resource bank is exploited without proper care and replacement, then those resources that serve as the foundation for our civilization become weaker and struggle to support us. Over the years, we have formed organizations that have created certifications that land managers can earn by meeting sustainability standards. Wood that comes from forests certified by the Sustainable Forestry Initiative or the Program for the Endorsement of Forest Certification are nowadays considered to be more valuable. But what do foresters need to do in order to ensure that their forest is sustainable? The answer is a lot. There are entire books of specific ways to meet these certification requirements, and those standards are updated every few years so as to reflect our best understanding of environmental sciences. Ignoring the nitty-gritty, there's a few common things these land managers must do. Foresters have to conserve water, and this isn't just tightening on how much they water their trees. This means leaving the waterways on their lands forested, as the root systems help stabilize the soil along stream sides and prevent general degradation of the land. They also need to limit their water pollution, which is done in part by keeping the waterways forested, but also achieved by being conscious of how much and what kind of chemicals are used on their land. Foresters must also conserve ecological diversity. There's a few different ways they can do this, maintaining sections of land that stay old growth and aren't harvested, as well as leaving some trees, whether living or dead, standing. This ensures that even though these plantations primarily exist to serve human needs, they also continue to serve the overall ecosystem as a healthy habitat. Standards like this have led to some foresters moving away from harvest strategies like clear-cutting, but you can also still clear-cut while leaving some stuff for the animals and manually replant instead of using what you left as seed trees. And one more standard revolves around community involvement. Foresters have to be communicative with the people who they share forest land with. This could be in the form of healthy relationships with native tribes and government agencies, or in the form of education, whether it be through contact with local schools or town halls. Legally, they own this section of land, but that doesn't mean that we don't share the forest. Harkening back to the idea of permaculture, these are connected systems, and the decisions that foresters make within the confines of their property affect those who live outside it. Being sustainable is a lot of work. You have to do all the things I laid out and more on top of just managing your land for the objective that you've laid out for yourself. But it's worth it for the benefits that sustainability creates, as well as the increase in job opportunities in the field of forestry. And this is all just one side of how we as humans manage our woodlands. What does it look like when ecological services are in the forefront of our management objectives? When we talk about managing a forest for ecological health and more intrinsic value, we often use the words conservation and preservation interchangeably. The truth of the matter, though, is that these are two different concepts. Boiling down their definitions, 
Conservation is about how we can properly use nature so that it can still be used in generations to come, while preservation is about protecting nature from human use as much as possible. The big example of how they are often confused is with US government agencies like the Forest Service and the Park Service, agencies that have similar names and often work together, but ultimately have different forest management objectives. Let's start with forests that are managed for conservation-based objectives. This is the Forest Service approach. With conservation, forests are used. On most national forest land, you can hunt, fish, ride ATVs off-road, and even cut down trees to be used as timber or other resources. But all those practices are regulated so that humans can continue to do those things for as long as possible. If you want to do those things, you can only do them so much and must pay permits to do them. The money collected from those permits goes into more conservation efforts like scientific research and restoration projects. And when it comes to the government actually doing more active management in these forests, there's a ton of hoops for them to jump through to do those things. Paperwork that has to get approved at various levels of command and communication with the surrounding communities so that people who share these forests understand how they are managed and can voice support or concerns. And oftentimes, this more active management is in the form of restoration projects. Things like planting trees to reforest sections of land, or removing invasive species, or helping endangered species who once thrived in these places. When I was studying forestry in college, one of my classes took a trip around Oklahoma and Arkansas to observe and experience different ways that forests are managed. We toured private lands where they were performing all the different practices I described in this episode's first half, and we toured a national forest where we just did some bird watching. The bird we were watching was the red cockaded woodpecker, an endangered species that once thrived across eastern North America. This woodpecker is very sensitive to disturbed habitats, and so these foresters were trying to create more stretches of Washita woodlands that looked as they did prior to European settlement. They actively drilled holes in trees that replicated what a finished nest would look like so that it was easier for these birds to comfortably reestablish themselves there. Yes, conservation looks like drilling into trees to help a bird, because we know that if the most sensitive of species can be happy in a forest, then that forest can support a wide array of life. But those decisions don't have to be about serving a measurable purpose. There is a philosophical idea known as deep ecology. This is the idea that there is intrinsic and spiritual value to managing a healthy forest for primarily ecological benefit. This is the school of thought that often breeds the negative image of a tree hugger as someone who sacrifices realism for their emotional desires. But the truth is that humans are emotional creatures, and that those desires are needs. And when those needs are met, our cultures can thrive. This is the basis behind preservation, protecting lands like forests from human use. The idea of needing spaces that aren't human-centric is what birthed national parks and designated wilderness areas in America, places where man is a visitor and does not remain. But not everyone appreciates this school of philosophy, so in order to sell it to those in charge, we originally had to market the management objective of preservation as tourism. Preserved forests are places where your great-grandchildren can visit and experience the scenery exactly the same as you would today. 
generations later, we will still know that the water flowing down Yosemite Falls is not polluted, or that Roosevelt elk in the Olympic rainforests are wild and free. As tourists, that's all we can do is visit. Rangers will teach you how you can leave no trace in these wild areas, take nothing but pictures, and leave nothing but footprints. Sometimes you can camp, make fires, and pick a small amount of berries. Sometimes you can do none of those things. Twice now, I've tried to backcountry camp in White Sands National Park, and both times I was unable to because of an effort to restore the areas that camping had disturbed. And that's okay. I recognize that each visit has an impact. It's because each visit has an impact that managing a preserved forest is a difficult job. The process of meeting this objective is not as simple as leaving it be. The presence of humans introduces invasive species like seeds on boots or bugs in firewood, species that can threaten to change the makeup of our wild forests. My very first ranger program was about how such species threaten the Olympic rainforest as we know it, and how much of a challenge it is for land managers. Just this past summer, it was the job of one of my neighbors to go into our Sierra Nevada meadows and pull invasive thistle plants that threaten native plant life. No, you as a visitor could not walk through the meadow because of how sensitive the native plants are. But someone has to go out there and prevent the non-native plants from changing the face of the meadow. That's just one example, and a local one at that. Global changes are creating more challenges for preserved areas as well. Climate change is leading to drier seasons and increased tree mortality that leads to more intense wildfires. Another one of my neighbors this summer walked through the forest and marked dead trees to be removed at a later date. Because if they stay, they simply become more fuel for the next wildfire. These relationships are incredibly delicate, and to a lot of people it doesn't make sense as to why the managers can be so heavy-handed, but you as a visitor can't just catch one more fish. These actions are all carefully measured to meet that objective of these wild places being preserved. Ultimately, forests serve many uses to humans, and the idea that forests serve humans is something that doesn't sit right with a lot of people. After all, we are not the only things that live on this planet. But we have an incredible power to manipulate our world, and that power requires a tremendous amount of responsibility. The responsibility of our forest health lies in the hands of our foresters, but also in yours. The decisions you make every day affect our forests, like buying sustainably sourced forest products or paying your use permits in national parks and forests. At any point in this explanation of forest management, you might have thought that being a part of these management processes yourself is something appealing. That's good. The world could always use more responsible foresters. Check out job listings with government agencies or in the private sector and take a look at what experience is required. Sometimes you can get started in the workforce right away. Sometimes you'll need a specific education. I got my education with an accredited program and have worked in field and lab science settings, done private consulting, and now work with government agencies. If you want any insight with any part of those processes, send me an email at treeguythomas at gmail.com. I hope this gave you a little more insight into how the forested world around you works. 
There is, of course, a lot I left out, like the processes for different forest products, and a bunch of ways that forests are used to make our world a cleaner and healthier place. But in two weeks, I'll be covering another tree that's requiring a little extra management help. Mangroves are utterly fascinating trees that serve incredible ecological services, but have been abused by human manipulation of our coastal areas. Join me on June 28th as I talk about the unique ecosystems that mangroves form and why we so desperately need them. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>